0: This is a production of Cornell University.
1: Yeah, let's. Uh, thanks everyone for joining. Uh, this is episode twelve this year, the Cornell Turf Show, our third season. Uh, glad to have a, a former guest on, Dr. Rock Suave, University of Nebraska Lincoln. Those of you who have l- listened or watched the show in the past, Rock's been on chatting uh, golf course turf, and, and today we got him on the sports, uh, the sports episode here, and we're going to chat. Uh, cultural practices, verification probably on sports fields. Um, probably talk about safety a little bit there too. So we're excited for that conversation. Uh, but as always, we'll uh, introduce Frank here. And Frank, you can get us going this morning, uh, looking at some weather trends. And as always, a couple little tidbits, uh, good pictures of note. There we go. Yeah,
2: I mean, you love it, right? Everybody, it's like the pandemic gave us license to bring our little kids and take them around. I think there's going to be a whole burgeoning in 15 years of kids coming to study this stuff because their parents, mothers and fathers took them to work. Right, Nicole at Baltimore. You see her kid raking the field at Camden Yards every once in a while on our Twitter handle. But here's a young man running the Auburn Fields, uh, bringing that's a that's a young one there, Rock. That's probably that's even younger than than your grandchild, which I happen to have a picture of in a minute as well. But I thought you know I'd start with what you taught me a long time ago that N, N was for knowledge in Nebraska.
0: Yeah, N is for knowledge. And then when you lay on your side because you've had too much to drink, it makes a Z so nobody disturbs you.
2: <laughs> <laughs> All right, and so thinking of knowledge, Carl, you're the man with the data point for today. What is it?
1: Yeah, so as a, as a prelude to our conversation with Rock here in a bit, um, this is a case study we did a couple of years ago with one of our undergraduate students uh, Reese Muller, who was a member of the soccer team uh, in our, our soccer field, our game field here at Cornell and Berman Field, uh, was pretty compacted on the sidelines, especially where players are kind of warming up during the game, maybe walking around, pacing around. Uh, so we did a little case study there. We took Clegg firmness me- measurements uh, prior to, to airifying there. Uh, and, and you can see this blue line for those watching. Um, was outside of our preferred range, so a little bit firmer than we'd like, and actually getting close to what we classify as high risk uh, due to excess firmness. Uh, why is that important on the sideline of the field? You know, because we don't have a whole lot of players running around there. Well, we know from Chase talking to Chase Straw in the past, when athletes are running towards a sideline, maybe trying to save a ball, when they step on a part of the field that's noticeably different, maybe firmer or softer than the other parts of the field, they can't react to that, right? And that's what can cause injuries when they go from a safe firmness level on the playing field to an excessively firm uh, sideline, that becomes a safety issue. So what we did is um, we went in and did some airification, three quarter inch tines, uh, removed those cores, top dressed with some um, some sand. And then a couple of days later, came back and took new measurements. You can see there this green line, uh, reduced our firmness right down into the preferred range. Actually a better standard deviation, so a more even firmness across that sideline too. Uh, So just a good example of of when we get uh, firmness readings that that indicate maybe we have a safety issue, using some of these cultural practices can really alleviate that, get us back into a a safe range.
2: And in this case, Carl, targeting, right? I mean, the beauty of this thing was it took us a couple of hours all in to to do the complete process. Uh, And actually, you can see the guy in the background there uh, in in this picture uh, actually doing the goal mounts right in the penalty boxes. And you know, when when money gets tight and you can't do as many things on your fields, focus the resources you have in the places uh, that need it the most, right? So Carl, let's get to the weather. And I think, you know, again, this is a common theme we've been having. We call it the roller coaster of the uh, up and down temperatures. And you look at uh, on one day, almost approaching a record high and uh, not five days later, approaching a record low. And this gets to be uh, really difficult for scheduling things, uh, putting up with where, you know, you're growing a little bit and then you're not growing. So you're obviously getting some heat into the system. But overall, it's been cool Uh, for the past week. We've been right around normal, maybe overall two degrees above, but lots of areas to the west below normal. And it looks like, After some warm-up weather immediately here in the Northeast, we're going back down into the 30s and 40s uh, by Wednesday of next week. So we're going to warm up and then head back down again. And by the time we see each other on the sports show in a couple of weeks, uh, we'll see how much we'll advance where we are uh, in that roller coaster. So, So let me move to the, there we go. And so we start to now, you know, we're starting to accumulate Uh, you know, 100 or so growing degree days or 80 to 100 or so growing degree days since the middle of March, right? So we're about a month in, we've maybe got, you know, 80 to 100. Now, what are we forecasting moving forward? Well, you're seeing still to the south, you're going to do really well. But as you move up north, you're still seeing you know, teens, 20s, 30s, so not still accumulating very much. And one of the reasons we use these uh, on these kinds of turf sports turf in particular is maybe you've got some weed issues you want to deal with maybe there's broadleaf weeds surrounding some of the fields hopefully it's not on your field um and it's time now as we use that, the growing degree day model developed at purdue uh sort of how it fits here where we think we're time we're getting into the ester form in the metropolitan new york area we heard from nick Menchek. On the call yesterday, the shortcut called that dandelions are starting to bloom uh, on Long Island, starting to see a few peak ones here and there, near buildings uh, in uh, northern areas. You start to get them in urban areas where you got more heat island effects, but, but on Long Island across the board, uh, it looks like they're starting to bloom a little bit. Now, on the rainfall front, everybody's getting rainfall. Uh, everybody's pretty wet. And it looks like we are gonna get a little bit more and not dry out significantly. So this is a big part of our discussion today with our guest, Rock Gaswa, Professor Gaswa from uh, University of Nebraska, Lincoln. And of course, now we bring in soil temperatures. We're still in the 40s, you know, not very high, not very conducive to growth. And this came up a couple of weeks ago uh, with our guest, Ben Polymer, who Rock and I were pals with the guy I think he stole this quote from and I think he attributed to him, uh, seed doesn't do you any good in a bag. So it's time to get out and start putting it out there. Uh, Ben said that a couple of weeks ago, and I think it's a good reminder. And so many of you, particularly in the springtime, are going to have lacrosse fields, right? This, you know, because of the size of the goal mount, this thing is impossible, right? So you get these kinds of surfaces, uh, that it gets hard to grow anything in, and so Rock, this is the surprise uh, thing for today. We'll gonna have to give me a little bit to set you up here, but but you know this is something you did. I think in the late '90s, you did yeah, it in, we did. Yep. Uh, in Nebraska, in Kansas, and in Iowa, right where you said screw it. Actually, in the narrative, I think you say sports field managers are so desperate to have any cover, they don't care what it is. Just give us some grass cover. So you did this, This I just showed you one table here and draw your attention to what you did, right? This was incorporating Bermuda grass, seeded Bermuda grass, its own rarity. And you can see the various types uh, of seeded Bermuda that were available. You did them alone and with some perennial ryegrass. But what I thought was really interesting, when you looked at just overseeding with perennial ryegrass, right? uh, You you got to 90% cover, right? And 37% exposed soil, by far the highest uh, exposed soil amount there, right? So um, what do you think about this now, 20 years in climate change, I got Bermuda grass, you know I'm fighting in Brooklyn. Uh, At what point uh, does this become a viable thing, not just a a whim you guys uh, put together to do this? Have you followed up on any of this? Let's start with this conversation.
0: So that's a great question and you know we, we still have some on very high abused fields I don't even call them high use anymore because they you know especially our intramural fields and, and and things like that and then and and as well as some of these uh smaller you know your rural communities where they don't really have a budget and they're spending money on ryegrass but our our data shows the ryegrass is pretty well gone at the end of the season anyway but we actually were developed were able to develop a little bit of thatch with a little bit higher nitrogen, not excessive nitrogen, um, using Bermuda as the overseed. Um, I'm not going to say the appearance is spectacular because, of course, it goes it goes dormant. Although the first year of seeding in Bermuda grass stays green a little bit longer, that may be a density thing. Environmental, we're not really sure why. But when they...
2: did you see these in the fall? Right?
0: Yeah, we would seed them in the fall, or actually uh, late summer before we had spring sports on whatever it was on on the um, like soccer and intramural complex um, you certainly wouldn't see them any other time because you so we'd see them in summer those fields might be getting used a little bit um, and if they were getting used a little bit we might use a little bit of rye because Bermuda takes a little, a little longer to take hold and then you throw in the climate change I mean clearly the climate which was, was was changing back then I mean climate is always changing but right. you know but it, it wasn't on the trends that, it was on the trends that we're on now yeah. and and we weren't predicting anything I'm not that visionary I'm not I'm not Frank Rossi, right? So uh, <laughs> so I wasn't that visionary, but now I see Bermuda creeping further and further north. Um, and and I wish it would be Kachon more than zoysia. I know zoysias, you know, they're growing it in Indiana and other locations. I just don't think the recovery and the growth potential of, of zoysia is anywhere near, even with the new ones, anywhere near Bermuda grass. And seed is relatively cheap and I use relatively-
2: it used um, to be, it used uh, to be cheap. <laughs>
0: but but all seed is expensive now i i saw ryegrass go from a buck 20 a little over a year ago to three thirty three forty now which is ridiculous when you think about it but i understand shortages and well it's it's, supply chain and everything else right well
2: and it's ridiculous when you think about the places that continue to overseed warm season grasses the ryegrass seed rates that they use uh, that they got away with, for, with a buck a pound that they're not going to get away with that five bucks a pound. So listen, let me move on because the real topic of conversation here was about soil stuff, right? I want to talk to you about early soil stuff. We talked with Doug last week for lawns and grounds and sort of uh, really uh, analyzed the, the need for routine widespread airification. And now the caveat, as I set up for you in our weather is You know, we got wet soil conditions and when you go to our uh, Safe Sports Fields website, uh, we have this statement in there that says, uh, not when it's too wet, it's a Goldilocks, right? Not too wet, not too dry. Uh, Here's, you know, maybe a couple of days after normal rainfall on a moderately well drawing soil, you know, you try to caveat as best as you can. So, What I want to go through and setting up our conversation is one, here's how we tell people about it. This is our safe sports field website that we encourage uh, everybody to make their way to. Uh, And we've talked about this in the past, that cultivation is generally short-lived. High traffic areas may need as much as six to eight uh, cultivations a year. So that is obviously something to consider in goal mouths and, and other, you know, high traffic areas on soccer fields, right? This is the traditional approach that we think about uh, getting out there and clarifying. The thing that I think is funny is that's a good looking turf. What the hell are they airifying that thing for? <laughs> I'm starting to ask myself these questions. I didn't ask myself in the past, Rock. But when things get limited, I'm like, well, what the hell you, maybe you're overseeding, but Jesus, is there any place for the seed to go in here? So we start to think about, okay, what are the various ways to approach this? And I know you and I have chatted about this. You've done some resources on this. I'm going to show you the one that we have on our website. But here's an airway, right? A knife that goes in, does some uh, shattering. Uh, These things wear out you wonder about start to wonder about the value of this device you you start to look at the shattering uh, versus the cores and you see maybe you're impacting a little bit more surface area than you are when you're separating it by 4 or 5 inches uh, on a field obviously there's a question about in one pass how much good do you do so i particularly wanted to indict this spoon airification equipment, Rock. Uh, And I wanted to use our pal, uh, Chase Straw. He did some work with Gerald Henry when he was a grad student there, Becky Grubbs who's at Texas now, their colleagues at Texas, Bob Caro and Van Klein. So this was obviously done a little while ago but it was reported in 2013, right? So uh, a lot of people, first off in their core ideas, half, half the sports turf managers are using this open spoon thing because you go fast um, and they were like well is it any good right is, is it any good to use this uh, open spoon so here's a, a big data table and the podcast people are saved not having to look at this thing but they measured things like s- surface hardness penetration resistance volumetric water NDVI which is turf cover and you know all these measurements and only one year was there any effect on surface hardness? No other variable in any of the three years, no matter how many times you did it, was impacted by open spoon airification. And they did it up to four times a year. So I went into the results here and there's this really interesting text there where they say, well, you know, our research says you may need to do this more than four times a year because we didn't start seeing a benefit from this particular type of airification, unless you did it four times, but then you get yourself into the compaction layer, right? You're doing it a lot of times the same way. Uh, Ricky showed this back in the day, Rock, even before you went to Michigan State, he started looking at these compaction pans when we got these new devices, right? So along come these new ways of doing things. And we, you know, like Air 2G, But we go back to uh, something that we put on our website. I know you've got a similar resource. This is cultivation practices and their goals during playing seasons, right? What are you trying to do? So we're in the season now. Obviously, you can't do drill and fill, and it says you can't slice things. Small slicing and spiking, that might help with water infiltration. So what I want to do and chat with you about, and I got a couple of questions I'm going to get to here. Here's the between seasons. If you don't have a spring sports season, you can you have some more options available. I thought I'd bring up the grandpa picture, uh, the proud grandma and grandpa picture, uh, which is always a good way to introduce you and ask you a couple of just simple questions to get us started here. How do you know what you need to do for airification? And how do you balance, you know, what you're using with the tactics, you know, you you can employ, right? How much the field gets used, where it gets used, and how you want to attack it. So let's start with the how do you know what you need, especially when your soil's really wet here, like it is uh, in the Northeast right now. What do you think?
0: So both great questions. And then, how do you know what you need? And, and I. Uh, this isn't a, a non-answer, but it is a way of looking at, uh, you, you know, the, the, there's an art and a science to what we do, right? And this is where the art comes in, because conditions are different from location to location. And, you know, you can have a rainfall, at least in our region, you can have a rainfall and then literally 10 miles away, they get no rain. So certainly when we make these blanket recommendations, like, you know, we think we can prescription this, and we can to a limited extent. And then what, and then what's the end game? And I think Minner, you know, clearly Minner was ahead of his time in a lot of ways. And, and, um, you know, he was always looking at, well, what's your, what's your goal? What do you want it to do? Are you trying to put seed down and not really alleviate compaction in that chart? We use that same chart when we do this training, right? Um, that chart kind of shows that what, what's your goal? I mean, do you want to get seed in the ground? Do you want to shatter during? And, you know, they, they make a generic recommendation there, but at the same time, um, they're not they're not saying that this is the absolute way you have to do it, right? So, so you know, wh- where do you start is what, what do you want to do? And, um, you know, sometimes if the soil is wet and you go in there with any cultivation device, it's going to make it worse. But if you need to get seed in the ground, certainly seed resting on the top of muddy and compacted soil. So then I would go with a less... I would probably consider short term, you know, even though the long term benefits are a slicer or something like that, where a very superficial slicer or maybe even something that dimples a little bit, knowing you're going to increase the compaction. But the less or the smaller area of that tine and the less invasive it is, then you're going to compact higher up and which is going to get torn up by players anyway. Right. So in that scenario with wetter soils, let's go shallow create a seed bed, get the seed down, whether it's, you know, we were talking about Bermuda before, whether it's Bermuda or rye, because certainly those are the, the grasses of choice in these scenarios where we need cover quickly. So just don't be as aggressive, realizing that this is, this is a aid at best until you can get in off season or, you know, you know, on a way stand or whatever, how, however their practices are or however their schedule scheduling goes. Right. And if it's a really ultra high use field, you know, that the scenario is there, putting seed out as often as they're doing any kind of cultivation right or maybe more so
2: yeah yeah so what about the open spoon did you like my indictment because a lot of people use this thing and maybe that's just a limited study and they even said the caveat there might be short-term benefits but this is this was a three-year study uh looks like uh, doing it four times a year would be enough what are your thoughts when you get out there talking to native soil fields and you know they're doing this open spoon stuff? Well, you know, when I saw
0: that article, I was, I, I was questioning, of course, I think we all were, right? You, sure. know, you know, 50% of the people doing it. And so then I did a straw poll in our region and uh, it, was, it was about 50%. So I think that data is pretty valid. And that's a piece of equipment that is quick. You know, they're relatively inexpensive. They're relatively easy to maintain. You know, there's a lot of good about that. hundred <laughs> percent but then so I was you know you called it an indictment um then I started thinking about how long-term core verification is or how long-term any of our cultivation technique And I kind of went eh, it's short-term but it still has value I wouldn't use it on a wet soil I mean you know yeah. you know right I mean I thought we've already kind of covered that but yeah. I actually don't see that as a negative I'm not comfortable with the idea that if four didn't work, then six might. I, I, I wonder whether, what direction you're going to go. We don't really know that, right? We just, you know, but it was three years worth of data, but if, you know, they stuck to their guns and they did the same study year after year after year, and they tracked it really, really well, it was amazing to me how many things weren't better than the control.
2: I know. Well, this, you know, brings me to the point here. When I show you this picture of really good looking turf, and you see people taking six inch hollow tines out of a decent soil that drains well and it's got good turf cover why do we do that
0: well you know i call that the farmer mentality you know i got a tractor i should use it right <laughs> and, and you know and i'm going to go cultivate and we know cultivation you know in in farm fields kills microbes and you know oxidizes microbes and all that other stuff right and i'm like so we're doing this and we may not need it when you when you like that picture you showed there's an example. What's wrong with that turf and why are you punching a hole in it?
2: So but so here's what I get. I'll give you what I get. Well, if I don't do it, it won't look like that. The minute I stop doing it, it's going to fail and I won't be able to sleep.
0: Well, if we'll go back to what you showed at the very beginning that Carl talked about, I've always thought about a a, a field. I don't care what it is. It can be field hockey. We don't play that here, but you know, or lacrosse, we don't play that here either, but you know, it could be, you know, American football or, or the real football, right? And we know the wear areas, we know the maintenance areas that need the most help. So, so when I show a picture of a field, I often say, think about it like a golf course. We manage our greens differently than we manage our tees, than we manage our fairways and we manage our rough, right? And in any park system, you're going to have areas that are kind of like rough and areas that are, and just using a golf analogy so why not manage these areas and i really like what you showed there because it's like here's where you know you've got that transition for player safety so that's a great catch right and the reality of it is is that they're running on this field that you've really maintained well and then they hit basically concrete and you know that can't be good for an athlete's feet or everything else even a even a a weekend warrior type athlete so treat those areas differently and not even how i go so far as to say frank you said when budgets are tight you know, you can always spend money on something else. So let's do that routinely. So maybe you go into those areas, you know, four to six times a year, but do you really need to, you know, let's get outside the hashes in American football, right? Let's get outside the goal mouse and the center, you know, line for soccer. let you know, let's always do the sidelines if they haven't unfortunately put in, I love the word places where they put an artificial turf in, right? <laughs> and then, and then they put it on the sidelines and I'm like, okay, you've got a temperature gradient, you've got a transition in surface and maybe it's not wearing out, but that's not good for anyone's health and well being when it comes. No, to- that's
2: for sure. Hey, Carl, yeah. did I see a comment
1: from Ben? Yeah. Yeah. Ben's got got a great question. I was actually thinking about this too. So Ben's comment is, you know, we feel like gas exchange and we read this in textbooks is important. Uh, But difficult to measure. And I think to your point earlier, earlier, Rock, you were talking about it's an art and it's a science. I'm thinking the same thing, Ben, is how could we measure something like that? Is there a test to measure gas exchange? And is that something we could uh, foreseeably use to drive, okay, if I I need more gas exchange, here's what I'm going to do.
0: You mean as a diagnostic tool? As a diagnostic tool. We can do it with lab experiments and, you know, platinum electrodes. And there's a lot of Well, we can do it
2: with bulk density. Can't we just assume that there's less air when there's more bulk density, when when the bulk density is higher?
0: Yeah. I mean, we could do soil physical measurement, but that's not a, I I was thinking more along if I was understanding Carl's question, what can we do to say, yeah, we need to do this now rather than taking a bulk density measurement and then waiting, you know, to have it. To, you know i mean you I imagine you could set up a lab if you wanted to in your shop or whatever and measure bulk so, so
2: you're saying everybody needs a platinum electrode right next to their clegg hammer
0: no i'm saying no they don't need that because i'm not sure you know number one i just know that all the work that jim murphy did when we were colleagues at at um michigan state he was a master student i was working on my phd he um you know, those platinum electrodes were a pain. I mean, they, you know, they bend, they do this. And, you know, if the electrode isn't connected you get false readings or you don't get a reading at all or you get some sort of weird little background. The noise on them I felt was pretty high. Um, and so I, you not know, easy I, I want a quick measure, solution,
2: not, right? easy measured, not easy to measure gas exchange or?
0: Oxygen diffusion. Which is, you know, essentially an indirect measure of yes. gas exchange.
2: But see, here's the thing I keep going back to, and I'm glad Ben's here because he probably saw the conversation with Machete or watched the video because he wasn't wasn't able to do it live. How is the soil behaving? I don't care about gas exchange. I don't. Is it sustaining turf? And if it's not sustaining turf, uh, does it? You know, is it easy after a rainfall to see if water infiltrates? Right. I mean, there's there's some diagnostics. You can do i think the the tougher issue is deciding okay uh it's not draining well uh it's in the season uh it's starting to thin maybe i'll make a hole but let me throw something in rock should i top dress would you put some sand would you put some yard some compost would you do any soil amending as you were thinking about improving that soil in situ in the season
0: okay so let's start with sand right and and, you know if you start sand top dressing you can't quit okay all right you're going to be sand top dressing forever and you were going to use bulk density as your diagnostic you put sand on your bulk density immediately goes up okay Okay. So, so, so all of a sudden we get rid of a diagnostic, right? I mean, if that's, if that's yeah. the one you want to use. Right. Um, and once you, I, I, I can't stress it enough. You, you know, we, we've got an example in, in golf, you know, with pushup greens where they started top dressing and people said, well, we can't do this anymore or, or we're going to delay it or whatever. And then they start getting layering and that creates a problem. And when you look at those greens that have been top dressed for 40 years, 30 years at least right you know they perform relatively well but you've created a new root zone right mm-hmm. and and you've done it over time certainly top dressing has value um in creating a surface that doesn't compact as much and you know in a perfect world all sports fields would be flexible enough to have a, a sand based but they don't well, and then you know
2: there's the old msu spartan sport what is that thing trey created the spartan system the oh yeah with the, with the grid captain. yeah that's so great.
0: Well it actually, it actually started at Rutgers. Harry Endo.
2: I don't care where it started. I think it's so great people name it, like the pen guys. They gotta name everything pen something.
0: Yeah, and if you say pen cross, you're wrong. You know, have, you know you're right, but if you say A4, you're wrong. Because it's you know it's it's pen a okay.
2: So it sounds like big no. Okay, um, if you're gonna get involved in starting a to sand top dress as a soil amendment tactic. Your opinion is you better think long and hard. Uh, What about, have you seen, uh, again, not in season, but maybe remedial. Have you seen the sand slits, those big pieces of equipment that inject the sand a few inches down on like four or five inch centers? It's a big hopper. I think it's a, a, I don't know if it's a blade or it's one of those, you know what I'm talking about. It's a big hopper sand, big slits. Is that a good interim thing in a goal mouth?
0: See, I think where you have issues where, you know, especially gold tend to get depressed, yeah. you know, and then they, then they become water catchment, Ooh. right? And so if you had extra sand in there, um, certainly that would help with some drainage of some kind. Even just a hole, I, I remember... Um, I took care of some sports fields when I was a graduate student at New Mexico State. You know, they, you know, it was my first consulting job. Right. And they had some horribly, it was flood irrigated. So I'll give you an example of how low tech tech it was. Right. You, you opened up a valve and stood there and watched the water. And when you had four inches on the surface, you closed it down and walked away. Right. Um, But we, you know, we, we went in and cored large cores backfilled them, you know, kind of made like a USGA spec green in that coring hole. I mean, we're talking, you know, six to eight inches in diameter. And those low areas then drained really well. And then we just capped them with the Bermuda grass that we had cut off when we had, when we dug the hole, right? And mm-hmm. it seemed to work relatively well. And and it kept water away from, this is a soccer complex, from the Gold mouse. And there were some lower areas on the field because you can imagine it wasn't leveled 100%. Even though it was flood irrigated, it still wasn't as level as it should be because you put three to four inches on and they irrigate them you know like every two weeks
2: it's the i the whole idea of flooding a field to irrigate it is something that's hard for most people back east to contemplate so listen we're at the witching hour here so carl are there other questions uh before we start to wrap it up
1: uh i got nothing nothing left on my end all
2: right here. one more then compost
0: See, I don't, I don't think there's enough information, you know, certainly we believe compost to be a positive for soil health, if we're going to use that term, you know, and, and, and it does, you know, it holds water, but it also helps break up, you know, increase aggregation, et cetera, all of the positives that that we know. know,
2: It's physical property amendments for sure.
0: But I I don't know how we get it an appreciable amount into the profile. um, And I just don't think there's enough there might be data out there that I'm not aware of. so I'm not going to say that it's not out there, but I really don't see the data on what that does. Um, you know, and there's way more data on crumb rubber, right? I mean, yeah. we haven't really looked into. We haven't really looked into organic matter. In in, in incorporation especially with you know we've got all these yard waste locations we've got availability you know it does have a cost associated with it but it's certainly not something that you have to commit to you wouldn't have to top dress compost every 7 to 14 days once you committed to it like you would with sand so I just I don't I I don't know but I think there would be a positive effect and I do know of some um, sports drift managers that are putting compost down um, prior to using a solid, not a solid tine, traditional solid tine, but but something that will push it down into the profile. Okay. Off season, when there's it's dry enough that they actually get some shattering at the same time, which helps incorporate that organic. And they seem to think that it's a a pretty positive practice. You know, they said the turf looks greener. I'm sure that's a nitrogen effect, but at least we're yeah, seeing yeah, that the nitrogen, it's the, the, you know the nitrification is happening, and that's a soil health thing, right? So yeah, yeah so I'm not I'm not going to make a commitment to compost, but I see that there's value there's a potential value in there that we don't know yet.
2: Well, at your age, you, you got to watch how many commitments you make, Grandpa. So, <laughs> so, so, so anyway, thanks for joining us, Rock. It's always good to hear you and see you, at least your outline. But I'm sure- Yeah, I know, I'm sorry to everybody, podcast,
0: but I'm, so I'm in a different <laughs> spot. I got, and it's sunny here. It's been, it's been cloudy for four days. And of course, today it's sunny here, but right. no, I always soon, always appreciate gal. it and, and hope to do it again soon. This has been a production of Cornell University. On the web, at cornell.edu.